Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropeneurs of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. And we just launched a Patreon for this podcast, so make sure to check it out. It's going to be in the show notes. Today's episode is with my guest, Zareth Pineda. Welcome, Zareth. Thank you. Zareth is an architectural urban designer and the founder of the nonprofit design collective, Territorial Empathy, which was founded on the belief that empathy-based design is the key to solving the pressing urban issues of our time. Her multidisciplinary and intersectional team aims to support urban equity for people in places often overlooked, namely women, children, and the displaced. Through the understanding of systems of oppression in urban environments, diligent research, and community-based design recommendations, the projects aim to create inclusive and thriving communities. Her work has been published and exhibited internationally. So I'm really excited to talk with you today. Um, coming from New York, uh, welcome, Zareth. Thank you, Julian. It's, it's so nice to um, be here today, especially on this podcast that um, is really focused on things that I deeply care about. Um, so thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited for a conversation about what, you know, what you call territorial empathy. And I mean, that's also the name of your design collective um, because it's, it's just such a, it's an interesting concept to, un, to, to really understand that we can design for well-being. We can design for uh, empathy. We can design for human needs being covered that, that then allow us to, to connect in a complete different way. So maybe tell us a little bit how that journey started for you, where this aha moment, this click was, where you're like, this is me and this is what I'm going to do. This all started, I think, um, I'm Colombian originally, and um, as the listeners may know, Colombia has the, had until very recently the longest ongoing conflict in the, in the hemisphere, um, very territorial conflict um, that had to do and then was later financed by the FARC and narco-terrorism, all these different things that were really terrible. Um, so there's a diaspora of Colombians around the world. Um, and that was the story of my family, more or less, um, at around seven. We moved to Boston, and um, no one really gives you the tools as a child to understand the loss of a sense of home. You know, it, it's something that is so traumatic, and, you know, people have felt, and, you know, I'm sure the listeners have in some ways or another, or even just moving, this idea of leaving a sense that you identify with home behind. Um, Unknowingly or unknowingly, I think I've kind of chased um, avenues to kind of recreate that sense of home. And naturally, I think um, now that I look back on it, I think that manifested in me studying architecture um, and really thinking about um, the fourth dimension in space, which is time and memories. And so um, the aha moment for me was in architecture school, you just really get taught, you know, how to resolve a set of constraints. And, you know, we talk about materiality or beauty or aesthetics, but we don't really talk about generating emotion. And the best way that I can think of, of how I understood how important this was. And um, I was in this lecture in Paris by Amos Gatai, who is the son of a um, master architect of Tel Aviv. And he was talking about how when his mother died, um, 
he went home to a home where he grew up with and and he had to get some of her belongings. I think they were gonna sell the property. And for him, it was the same place, it was the same everything, but when he thought of his sense of home, it was always related to smells. So she was always cooking, she loved to cook, it was amazing. So then he goes back and it's the same exact place, same everything there, but that sense of scent and smells and that presence that his mom had in the space was gone. And, and that was so that that was so moving to me that that as designers through the power of rituals, through scent, through light, through materiality, we can create emotions that, that give people a sense of home. Um, and I think that's how the journey started back then and now into territorial empathy, where we really think about how design can can do that for other people and, and bring them together um, through these levers instead of you know tearing them apart because um, apartheid division has had so much intentionality through urban design, through walls, architecture, surveillance. So we have as designers the same responsibility to undo that and mediate that through design as well. Yeah, beautiful. I, I like that anecdote around, you know, smells creating that feeling of home. Um, very much real for me uh, personally. Let's dig a little bit deeper on the like intentionality around, you know, segregation and separation that we've kind of inherited, right? Like our generation going forward, we, we've like inherited this infrastructure and these old systems that, you know, they were just kind of matter of fact, that's how it is. While in reality, it, it might not have to be this way. But, you know, when you think of the United States or places like New York, or you just mentioned apartheid in South Africa, or how many countries there are with walls, like the separation and segregation of different um, like classes within society and like quotation marks here, of course, for the word classes or, 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 or races or ethnicities. It's horrific. Like this has been a total part of the human history um, until basically like super recently. And I think it's still ongoing. I think, mm -hmm. um, I think actually when it's much worse, it's when it's more pernicious and subtle. Um, there's something when you can physically understand the world. In fact, um, you know, I think that's something that happened in Berlin and there was kind of this symbolism that was of, of oppression that then was torn down. And I think what happened in a country like mine in Colombia, because it was this territorial conflict that was always shifting and it was moving. It's part of the reason that it lasted so long. And I think that is now, I think that's what's always happened in America. And I think that anonymity of not I, not being necessarily able to identify these symbols is what's perpetuated it for so long. So, for example, we've been working a lot um, on mapping data, uh, mapping um, how COVID moved through New York City. It's predominantly affected communities of color. In the US, um, as of the time that we did this, if you are a, a person of color, you are two times more likely to get the disease and three times more likely to die. Um, and so that, um, when you look at maps of the city, it's actually really interesting because we could almost predict how bad it was gonna be for certain neighborhoods. And then um, the maps of the worst cases of coronavirus in the city almost directly correlate to maps that were delineating segregation in the 40s. So in America, we have this practice called, we had this practice called redlining. Um, 
started by the homeowners corporation. Um, essentially, when you went to get a mortgage, and that's in America how people have built generational wealth, um, they would do maps of your city and give them different grades, like in school A, B, C, D. Um, the areas that were determined to be A were mostly white, wealthy areas. B would be maybe, um, you know, working class whites, and then C and D were people of color. Lo and behold, where you uh, put manufacturing, where you do all of these things would be in the areas um, of people of color. And so those folks had a harder time securing mortgages. Um, their property values were significantly lower. And so that segregation pattern, it's almost still the same in New York City today. And so I'm just thinking about it as something as simple to explain as, um, COVID. It's a pulmonary illness when you have a pre-existing condition like asthma, your outcomes are significantly worse. So we've been looking at particular matter in the air and it's just so much worse in these neighborhoods, mostly Black and Latino neighborhoods, um, because of these racist planning decisions that were made in the 40s to, to create the erasure of Black and Brown people. Um, and so that's where we have higher asthma rates. That's where we have higher childhood asthma rates and just a worse air quality thinking about environmental justice. And so that is why people, and one of the reasons among many why people get sick, um, so, you know, it, and, and when you think about New York, you really think about the capital of the world, inclusivity, all these things, but these, these um, divisions have been made so long ago and were so subtle that, you know, that false sense of security, almost like during the Obama presidency, we're in a post-racial society, we don't have to think about race anymore, but that's been proven to not be the case. So I think it's a negotiation between seeing and, and not seeing and really trying to think about what's below the surface. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like that you just went there. I think, you know, reconciliation across all topics of, of like past pain and trauma in this human species is, is totally not completed. There might there might not be a finish line to it either, you know. And so when we when we go and and and, and immerse into that, and, and it means different things individually for different people and 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 you know, all of our different origin points, right? Um for me, being born in 87 in Germany, like I definitely feel like I was like that incoming generation that was like, oh, the wall just fell. Like we're now a symbol of unification. And then at the same time, like reconciliation has consistently brought me into interactions um, in Israel or with Jewish people just to like consistently understand like how the past of our human species could have been this way. Um, and, and, and then from that, I think what, what starts happening, and I think this is where our conversation might be going now, is, is, is at some point, regeneration can start. At some point, you realize, okay, these are the, the systems of oppression that are here, and possibly like in urban environments, they were actually planned for, like redlining, as you ex explained it. Um, it. It's wild, right? I want to mention something interesting right before we, we go into how to build environments that actually allow, you know, designed to to kind of create the space for empathy and I, I want to i want to before we go there i want to point at you know the other side of this inequality so you know many of you listening can imagine this and 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 you know you said you you know your background is in colombia so I, i've seen this specifically in south america um as well as in in very rich parts of north america but is there's a form of ghettoization 
of the rich as well. Where like the moment you hit a certain level of wealth, you're creating a wall around yourself and, and living in like a gated community that is a like a fake sense of security. But what I've noticed, and, and you know, this is a personal opinion, might not be a fact, but the, the level of transparency of well-being of feeling of just equality of fun of play of is less in these places because those places are designed like little like castles to keep things out and there's something weird that happens where it's almost like the the true connection is replaced with a connection of hierarchy and so for me these places are even almost like you know they're maybe um better places to live in to have a healthy environment in terms of um you know uh, pollutants but but they're they're actually not necessarily a better environment to live in for your social well-being can you touch on this is that something you've you've ever witnessed or watched absolutely i mean i think um and i think that comes directly from income inequality and the concentration of privilege i mean there is a reason why you know we have the one percent and why they tend to look the way they do i mean i think race is a made-up social construct that we've done to um essentially rape and pillage the land and and subjugate it and collect privilege and that is a narrative that's not happened just you know it's happened in so many places that's tied to colonialism it's tied to colorism and whiteness and um latin america um you know there's still that like vestiges of that from the time that you know we were colonies that autumn meant that you had less rights being indigenous meant that you had less rights and so that you know there's this term that is an invoke in, in in mexico white sickens right that if you are of a lighter complexion you have more access to privilege education wealth um that is the truth everywhere and it's not just these on i mean they're not just these enclaves of wealth there are these enclaves of privilege and that is essentially creating, you know, a gated community a wall against the reality of what's outside. Because when you encounter those things, those are things that are painful. As human beings, we're born with empathy. We were born to be able to connect and create community. We were never meant to be isolated. You know, when you look at indigenous communities, they are systems that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a community to feel happiness and whole. And, and so being, you know, confronted with that is, is of course painful, but there's also this commodity that being in a position of privilege comes sometimes from oppressing these people. And so it's kind of this very selfish, um, but also pervasive um, narrative that, you know, if I don't see it, it doesn't happen. And, and that's precisely what we try to kind of go against because it is, you know, and, and people get used to that and then they forget, you know, the struggle, they forget the price of a carton of milk, they forget what a minimum wage job actually does. And then they treat people as if their their they're innate, you know, value came from their purchasing power, which is totally ridiculous, of course, because that's been also predetermined by, you know, the accident of birth essentially in most in most places, especially in Latin America. Yeah, a deep topic. I'm, I'm curious now how we're going to turn this around because really I think um, there is so much work to do on this planet. You know, there's so much cleanup and reconciliation and then, and then rebuilding to do. But we had a little chat before we started this conversation that one of the essential tools to bring to regenerating and rebuilding is, is fun and is play and is realizing that 
you know, when we leave that separation, that hierarchy, that like in, intentful kind of um, making each other different from each other, when we leave that behind, there's so much connection. Now there's suddenly a complete new playing field of how humans interact because empathy is a natural experience for us, right? Like you can pretend as long as you want that you don't feel how these other people feel, but we feel each other. So, you know, tell us a few stories about how that work um, that, you know, that you just said yes to is, is like filling your life with, with, with joy and with, with moments that are these aha moments where you're like, this is why I'm doing it. I'm so excited to talk about that because I think that if I didn't have that in my life, I wouldn't be doing what I was doing. But before that, I have to acknowledge that so much of that work has been shaped by women of color. Um, women like Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote this phenomenal book that I encourage everyone to buy called Pleasure Activism, um, where it's really about making change um, irresistible, making it feel so good. Uh, you know, th like a superficial example would be like, you know, the civil rights movement, like the era of love, Woodstock, everyone was having so much fun that it was like, you know, why are we all so worried about all this shit? And it, but really making it change feel pleasurable. Um, and, and not in just, you know, with your body, I feel like, especially with women of color, um, like myself, we've been taught to make ourselves small to, you know, to conform into these societal paradigms that we've been inherited. But I think it's about feeling good in your body, um, you know, bringing people into the fold. And that is so much of what we try to do. Um, so, for example, we've been doing a lot of work around um, school communities and, and integration. Um, New York City has the most segregated public schools in the country. Um, and so I get to work with young people who are just badass, who are just way smarter than I was at their age, starting from middle school and just move you that are just unapologetically themselves. And I think it's part of media or all these things that we don't see people like shining in their light. But I get to work with students who are essentially my bosses for a lot of the projects because I have to understand um, that I don't know enough about a community. I might have some tools and I, and I think this is you know sometimes we fall into this like sense of security that if the experts here we don't have to worry about things like they know better than us yeah but that's not true no one knows the community better than the people that live in it um, and so one of our beliefs at territorial empathy is radical empathy and that in radical inclusion which means that when we talk about you know including people into our projects we're not like oh photo op here like you know we worked with this community but it's like they're actually our bosses like i've had you know kids tell me like this design doesn't make sense it reminds me of this thing that's been traumatizing and triggering and just the fact that they work for organizations like um one of our partner organizations integrate NYC. They take kids from all over the city and they coach them on policy and advocacy and social media and all of these things to empower them to be the best versions of themselves. And that I get to work with those people who center self-care, mental health, um, you know, really having meaningful conversations that before a meeting, they'll do a check-in to talk it to and create intentional space to talk about what's going on in their lives that will bring art and music and all of these things into the fold. That is what I think has created 
in our you know in our brief experience but successful projects where we where people feel seen where they feel valued we're just you're not preaching to them but they really it's these rich partnerships that move the work forward and i think that's what's so exciting but it's really about centering pleasure in what you do and often because of our society and you know capitalism and consumerism we think oh that's just flat there's no time for that but it's actually that pleasure that gets people involved i mean we we're a mostly volunteer run organization you know you have to think about these these things too when you have limited budgets when you have all of these things how do you like how what motivates people and you have to motivate them and, and speak to their heart and and give them agency to do things and, and make the work fun because if not then what do we have um so that's something that i think is so exciting to me and and that's where it kind of the magic happens when i think people feel seen and heard and and empowered and validated yeah very powerful um, I have a question there. Uh, usually I ask, you know, what is required for you to experience trust? But what have you learned about trust in that process? Hmm. That's a tough one. I think trust, especially through this community-based work, has is correlated to vulnerability. Um, when, you know, when you get to kind of be in places where and through some of this work I've been able to, um, where there's people in positions of authority um, who you know, you're supposed to trust because they're so-and-so, but sometimes you kind of sit at, um, at these tables and it's kind of what Michelle Obama says when she talks about imposter syndrome, that you get to a level where you're sitting down at a meeting and, and you realize that these people aren't that smart and that they're there mostly because of privilege or all of these other things at like the UN or, you know, there's so many things that um, happen. But when I really trust someone or when it, it happens in my day-to-day -day work, I think how community is built is vulnerability. So I try someone more that's willing to open up the things that aren't pretty, like the um, the speech that's been written for them. But when someone's speaking from the heart and you feel like as human beings, we all have a sense of intuition where we recognize, real recognize is real that, you know, everyone talks about that, but it's true. It, it's when you are willing to say like, not clean up your store or anything but i am worried about this and i need your help and these are the reasons why and the other person's like engages with that in, in your speaking in a heart language and and i think that maybe is what establishes trust but then i think what sustains it is boundaries you know in in america we say screw me once shame on you screw me twice shame on me and i think what is so hard about how people have been dehumanized is that they don't feel like they have the right to establish boundaries and say, this is what I want, this is what I expect. And if you don't do this, bye. But we're, you know, especially women, we're taught to, you know, be the pacifiers to just take, take and worry about everyone else's well-being except ours. But trust really has to do with a consistency and a respect. And so you really must, you know, create those boundaries and and, and feel, even if it's scary, to, to advocate for them and say, you know, be vulnerable and say, I am trusting you with my heart. I am trusting you with my thoughts. 
and this is what I expect. And if that's not met, also having the the awareness to be to 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 think that this is someone that might not have my best interest at heart, and also making your peace with that and being able to walk away. But if not, you know, and I and what I've found through vulnerability is that actually when you connect at this heart level, then people really resonate with that and that they're and you know, you can create beautiful partnerships that are fulfilling to both people. Yeah, thank you for that answer. There's there's a lot in that. I think trust is um, a very, very, uh, you know, needed um, kind of measurement to how we create going forward. Because we want to create with trust and with boundaries and with, you know, honoring everyone involved, but also that will create systems and places and spaces and encounters and projects and opportunities, which we can then immerse into even deeper because that kind of energy is, is, is taken care for. I want to ask you another question, and that is about, you know, if you were alone or in a group of experts, if you were to change the education system at large, Zareth, what would you do? That's a great question. I think right now education is based on metrics of achievement, standardized testing, you know, all of these different things that actually we've now learned are not predictors of how well someone's going to succeed. And we've actually known this very well, but I think we're just so, um, you know, um, we're a little bit lazy to change the status quo because that involves thinking outside the box. But um, what I would, you know, because racism all these things are taught, but I, I would encourage cultural sensitivity education. I would encourage things that celebrate the child where we think about, you know, mental health, well-being, instead of was this child able to memorize and regurgitate this list of things, you know, but really thinking about a holistic approach to education where it's mind, body, and soul. And, and we really have a consideration for what that child is going through at home, good or bad, and we really think about ways to reinforce that because I think really every every kid has the potential to be anything he wants to be. There's just some kids that have more privilege than others. And the sooner we recognize that, the better that we'll create this little army of just like really aware human conscience, human beings that can live their truth and live their life to the best of their abilities and and really create the change that we need to see in the world. Yeah, detail to that, 100%. Human beings with, you know, emotional intelligence, with with awareness about their own, their, their own journey, their own essence, their own calling, their own desire, so that we can, you know, really create change that allows anyone from anywhere to, to really thrive. I have another question for you. I'm curious about, you know, your favorite places in the world. So a bit more of a, a grounded question here. If you were to name just three of them, um, and I'm pretty sure New York is going to be one of them, but I don't know, maybe not. Uh, what would be your three favorite places on the planet? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> it's like asking me to name my favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, so I, I think Colombia is such a magical place. I, I love it more than anything, the biodiversity, the warmth of the people, um, I absolutely adore it's um it's phenomenal every time I get a chance to I try to go back as often as possible um 
I think New York is definitely one of them. I think New York, and we talked about this a little bit before, but even though New York has so many issues as we've outlined, I feel like it still has this energy of positive, like of possibility that you can wake up one day and you know, and I've had these experiences happen to me where you end up meeting someone or someone else and then like that leads to something else. Um, and it it's just things that really couldn't happen in any other place. Um, I, you know, I love so many places around the world, but you know, I love the Middle East. I, I love the Middle East. I did my thesis on the Arab-Israeli conflict, but um, if I had to, and it's not, yeah, maybe New Orleans. Um, New Orleans is probably my one of tied for New York for my favorite American city. And um, I went to college in New Orleans and it's so unique because I started college after Hurricane Katrina. And essentially the federal government was saying in New Orleans is below the water table doesn't make sense for us to rebuild. We're not gonna give you money, figure it out. Um, and the people of New Orleans have this love for that place that is unrivaled. And they themselves came back and they're like, fuck it, we're gonna do this ourselves. Um, New Orleans is now one of the fastest growing cities in America, tech, everything, but that's not, you know. I think New Orleans has is this um, it's just, it feels like you're walking into a Woody Allen movie and and oh, everything's yeah. suspended. It's um, you know he's Woody Allen's a little problematic, but his work is great. Uh -huh. And so the it it feels like the rules that apply to every other place don't apply in New Orleans. Like if you know you can't, or at least when I live there. You can't go on your app and see when's the next streetcar coming. It could come in five minutes. It could come in 45. Like you just don't plan for those things. And, and really that sense of celebration that they have both for life and death that they'll get a second line and people are just celebrating anything in that, um, you know, the, the carnival season, the food and the, the cultural influences from the, the indigenous people that were there, the Creole, the French, the Spanish, it really feels like they kind of celebrate that in, in a beautiful way. And the architecture is phenomenal. It, it really feels like you're in a different country when you're in New Orleans, but it's really that sense of grit and determination in the, in the music, you know, it's where jazz was born. And I only think it could have been born in New Orleans. Um, so yeah, I think those places are my favorite places. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, thanks for taking us on a little uh, world tour with yourself there. Yeah, I, I think New Orleans is also, you know, somehow, as you said, it has so many cultural influences, but somehow magically connected through the Caribbean all the way back to Colombia, right? Um, yeah, very interesting how, how people have moved way before countries had the names that they have now. Uh, Zareth, I have, I have a last question for you today. And, and this one is, is a little less grounded, a little bit more visionary. So, you know, if we were to just, you know, close our eyes for a second and zoom out on the timeline of the human journey that we're on. And if we were, you know, to, to take a seven generational approach for a minute here, you know, seven generations into the future. So us being ancestors for the future generations, what is the dream and the vision that's in you for your life, for your work that's with you right now that, you know, is in this, this kind of alignment with, with seven generations forward? Wow. 
that's it's beautiful to think about and I think um it comes back to community you know I think all of these revolutions that we've had the industrial revolution the tech revolution um they've served their purpose uh, but they've separated us from what our reptilian brains were kind of designed for so what I would love is that these tools that we've developed to be supportive of our of our natural ways of life. Um, I think there's been phenomenal advances in hydroponics, um, you know, technology, all of these things, but really kind of coming back to our humanity where we can be in in a community that is respectful of the environment, you know, with permaculture, um, inclusivity, I think, you know, by then hopefully race will be uh, something of the past as our community becomes more globalized, but that it's really um, communities that are empowered, that are inclusive, where um, obviously no borders, but people create community on shared ideals, um, and, and they're supported and they're seen and, and we really take care of our environment um, and that we've kind of learned the lessons of the past and, and are just willing to, um, that our foremost priority is to, to respect each other and to see each other for who we are. Um, and I think that's kind of, it goes back to so much of the work and I think that the more that we constrain, the more that we try to um, hoard privilege you know, to keep the status quo, I think it's doing a disservice because the more we empower people to kind of live their truth and the best version of themselves, you don't know where the next cure for cancer is gonna come from. It could be from, you know, this kid whose parents didn't go to school or whatever, but we need to, you know, empower them to do that, to, you know, solve the carbon problem, to create regenerative materials, to create advances in technology, to do all these things they're not going to come from the same people. So we just need to create the level playing field to kind of honor people's, you know, journeys and, and kind of dismantle these systems of oppression. And I see it very much kind of as maybe, a, you know, pre-industrial revolution society that it really is based around small communities of support. Um, nomadic tribes, et cetera, but that are aided by the, the technological advances that we've made. Beautiful. Let's let that sink in. I can, I can definitely resonate with that. Uh, Zareth, is there anything else you, you want to share, any call to action, any way you want to direct people's curiosity at the end of this episode? Um, well, we've talked about so many amazing things, but if, I welcome everyone to check out our work, um, territorialempathy.com. Uh, we have uh, projects really all over the world. Um, you know, we have some that deal with refugee issues, some that deal with education, some that deal with architecture. Um, and, you know, I think they're, they're a unique way of looking at the world. So I welcome folks to do that. Um, social media, I think will be posted on the episode at Territorial Empathy on Instagram. Uh, my personal social media is at Sarah Tiela on Instagram. And we try to post kind of, you know, our day-to-day -day lives and what's going on. Uh, but beyond that, I think that's it. 
Here we are. This is your host, Julian. Thanks for listening. I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, relationships, and business, and the way you show up as your best self for the world. Did you know that we just launched a participatory Patreon asking you for your contributions of content and gifting a monthly subscription to our shared mission? The Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, video interviews, and community is growing, and together we can make it count and carry big ripples. So go and check out the Patreon. It's linked out in the show notes of every episode. The Patreon for Green Planet, Blue Planet, and the community we're building together. Thanks for choosing to support with your time, money, or content. And that being said, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe, review the show, share it with a friend, spread the love, and have yourself a stellar day. All the best. Mm -hmm.